deserved uh, trip. I, I, I think I heard he was up uh, maybe in Door County, and then he's going to go shooting deer or something like that next week. And so, um, uh, so just pray for him and, and his family as they uh, get a little break. Um, he'll be back next week. This morning, uh, our text is Psalm 71. And as you heard, if you heard uh, Tony, as he was uh, reading the psalm a bit earlier, you'll note that the psalmist says that he recognized God's presence um, at his earliest ages. He says, God showed him his righteous acts, he says. And he gives God credit for his very life, saying that it was God who placed him uh, in his womb and who brought him forth from his mother's womb. And then as he, as he ages, he promises that he's going to declare God's goodness, even as an old gray-haired uh, man. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is talk to you about some resolutions that come out of Psalm 71. Resolutions that I believe will lead uh, for us to have an abundant life in God. Um, Dr. Jane Smith is a PhD from Harvard uh, University. Uh, she currently serves as the executive director of the Spelman College Center for Leadership and Civic Engagement. And she's a prolific keynote speaker as well. She delivers a presentation called A Life in Four Quarters that is aimed at helping individuals age with wisdom. She's leading a personal campaign to perpetuate an, a, a new, more positive view of aging for, for baby boomers and adults of all ages. Dr. Smith was born in 1946, and 1946 was a very significant year for America. Um, it was during that year that the period called the baby boom began, when soldiers like my dad came home from World War II, and they married and they started families. Between 1946 and 1964, about 79 million babies were born. 1946 was the year that President uh, Bill Clinton and former President George W. Bush were born. Um, those 79 million children, they created a lot of, um, the, uh, in the cities, just explosive growth, and they started the suburban sprawl. Uh, the demand for housing, the demand for new roads, for utilities, for cars, for, for new homes and appliances helped spur the American economy to, to levels of growth it had never seen before. And when Dr. Smith was about eight years old, she had a very unusual dream. She dreamed that when she turned 50, she would be speaking to crowds of hundreds about aging well. And at the conclusion of her address, she saw herself receiving a standing ovation. She had a very unusual dream, and she's a, a bit unusual person because from that age, from age eight, she couldn't wait until she turned 50. Could you imagine that? When she got to 50, she knew that she was going to be a queen. She knew that she was going to be a star. So when she turned 44 years old, her last grandmother died. Her two grandmothers, one lived to 99, the other lived to 106. Jane said to herself, woe is me, she was 44. She was like, I've got about 56 more years to live, what am I gonna do? 
And so spurred by that question to herself, spurred by that self-reflection, she created this, this concept that she calls a life in four quarters. She travels the country lecturing to colleges and businesses and non-for-profits, teaching that there are four separate life stages and four separate um, things, uh, separate lessons to be learned in each of these stages. I want to walk you briefly through these stages. In Smith's model, the first quarter is called an introduction to life. And it is comprised of zero to 25. These are the formative years when, when a person learns, when a person grows. It's especially good during this period, if you're in this, folk, in this area, to have an inquiring mind. This is the time that you want to experience life, that you want to touch things, you want to taste things, you want to go on missions trips, you want to travel abroad, you want to take some different classes. You want to do these things as long as you can keep from killing yourself, all right? So be, be adventurous, be risk-taking, but use some good common sense, she says. During this stage, a person is totally dependent on others, dependent on their parents, dependent on their teachers, dependent on their coaches, right? To, even when they start working, dependent on their bosses to give them good information and good training and good guidance. This is the period of life when a person learns the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. And they learn the importance of obedience and respect from, for others. This is the first stage of life. In the second stage, she calls this an exploration of life. This is between age 26 and 50. During this, this phase, a person asks themselves some very important questions. Like, what do I really believe spiritually? What do I believe politically? Who am I? What do I want to do with my life? What am I interested in? What are my passions? And who do I want to spend the rest of my life with? In the second quarter, you begin to make some serious situations. You make these decisions, rather, and these decisions can have a significant impact on your life. You, you learn not only to make tough decisions, but you learn how to deal with the consequences of the tough decisions when you're in the second quarter of your life. In the third quarter, it's called a period of confirmation. This is from age 51 to 75, a confirmation of life. This is the time, if you're moving in this period, according to Dr. Smith's philosophy, according to her model, when we should be most productive. For the wise and the well-prepared, this person can be making some very significant accomplishments in their career. If they have children, they are launching their children into adulthood, hopefully successfully. But this can also be the most difficult period of your life. This is when you find out that life is not all a crystal stare. Pain, heartache, disappointment can be typical for these years in your life. And despite your best efforts, things just don't quite pan out the way you had planned. Dr. Jane Smith had a son in, in, that played college baseball, so she likes to use sports analogies. She compares this period in life to the ninth inning of a baseball game, and you're at bat. The bases are loaded, your, your team is two, uh, there's two outs, your team is down by two runs. The pitcher on the mound is hurling 95 mile an hour fastballs. The catcher behind you knows all your weaknesses. They know that you can't hit the changeup and you can't hit the high hard one. They know all of your weaknesses. The defense on the outside, there's seven of them out there. They got one thing in mind, to get you out. 
And there you are with some accomplishments that you want to achieve, things that you've been dreaming of your whole life, with obstacles in front of you. Dr. Smith says this is the time when you need to rely on your coaches. They're not going to be out on the field with you like in the old days when you had a tutor to help you play music. They're not going to be out on the field. In many cases, for folks in this age of their life, their tutors are going to be miles away. They're going to be people that just fly in and fly out of their life. One of her such tutors was a man named Dick Gregory. Dick is an entrepreneur and a social activist. Dick told Dr. Smith this, she says, in this phase of your life, it's good to keep some psalms from the Bible near to you. You very well may need to pray and sing your way through some of the trials of life. That's what Dick told Dr. Smith. Then you reach that fourth stage of your life between age 76 and age 100. This is the time Dr. Smith says is the time for legacy. Smith's caution here is that the legacy must have been created, it must have been built during those first three quarters. This is a time for a person to renew their commitment to investing in other people's lives. In the end, that's what they're gonna be remembered for, what kind of parent they were, what kind of leader they were for people outside, what kind of saint they were here at the church, what kind of minister they were, what kind of grandparent they were. In the end, their legacy is going to depend upon the impact they had on people on a day-to-day basis. Seniors in this stage of time, they have a lot to offer. They have a lot of wisdom. And in many cases, they have time. And they can invest in their families, friends, and community. And those of us who are a little bit younger, we we would be wise to be able to glean the wisdom God has given them throughout the years. Dr. Smith says that, that a strong character is what allows a person to live well throughout these stages. She believes that life is well, that is well led is characterized by discipline and focus, calculated risk taking and faithfulness. But in Psalm 71, The psalmist makes some commitments that he believes leads to an abundant life. Dr. Smith has a motto to walk us through life, and God, through his word, has a reliable, dependable model that will walk you through every stage of your life. I want to help uncover some of the things that God commends to us that things that we should make commitments to, resolutions that we should make for an abundant life. And it's good for us to make these resolutions because God's desire is that we live a life of productivity, we live a life of, 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 of purpose, that we live a life of joy. So how do we do that? Psalm 71, we're gonna look through six different resolutions. The first one is, I will always take refuge in the Lord. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. The second is, I will always hope in the Lord. We'll see that sprinkled throughout this psalm. I will praise the Lord at all times. In these verses 6 through 7, 14, 22, 23, praise is a very significant theme of Psalm 71. I will enjoy the Lord's presence. Do you enjoy the Lord's presence? Have you learned to experience the presence of God? I will tell the Lord's salvation. I will be a witness to the world. And number six, I will declare the Lord's goodness 
to the next generation. These are the six things that the psalmist declares lead to an abundant life. Now there's two pages in your pew Bible I would like you to keep at the ready. The first one is page 907. That's where Psalm 71 is. And the second one is page 331. That's where Joshua 1 is. Most of the biblical references that we will look at can be found on these two pages, page 907, and then put a pen in page 301. I will always take refuge in the Lord. Let's look at what the, the psalmist declares in the first four verses. This is what he says. He says, I have taken refuge in you. Or this could also be said, I have put my complete trust of everything that I know, everything that I am, everything that I do, I've based it upon God that you are real and that you love me and that I'm yours. I have put my complete trust in you. Then in verse two and three, he says, rescue me, God. In the midst of my difficulties, he says, save me, God. He says, be my rock and refuge. He says, deliver me. How many different synonyms can a person use to, to say, for at the first stage in life, at the earliest parts in life, the most important thing is that we put our full hope in God's salvation, that we trust in the Lord. So it is with every Christian. Not only do we need to be concerned with salvation for our temporal bodies, which is what this person is talking about in these first five or six verses. He's asking God to save him from the wicked, but also we need to be concerned about salvation from our souls. This is why in Psalm 71 and 23, the psalmist says this, he says, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you whom you have Redeemed, hearkening back to Nick's sermon last week, this this psalmist has already confessed. He's already repented of his sins to God, and God has already restored him, already received him. Listen, you need salvation for your soul, for for now and for eternity, and you need salvation for your body here on earth. I learned this through a difficult trial about eight years ago. And according to Dr. Smith's model, I would have been in my second um, stage of my life. That's pretty much where I am now. Here's what happened. Uh, I had an agent who worked for me. I had 30 agents. I was a sales manager in Chicago for American Family. And uh, this was about the eight year of a 10 year sales management career. And uh, I had an agent who was doing well in terms of uh, Premiums. So she had written about 800000 a year in auto, home, and commercial premium. Very good. The problem was that the claims paid to customers from that 800000 was about a million bucks. And so the losses was 200000 That's unsustainable. You don't have to go through a, a class at UW to figure that out. That's unsustainable losses. And so um, I recognized this issue. Uh, I brought, so I looked into it to see what the matter was with the situation. And I asked the agent to come see me in my office. And I sat her down and I explained to her, I showed her specific instances where she wasn't following the company's guidelines. What was happening was uh, somebody who should have been charged $400 for insurance, for auto insurance every six months, was being charged 250 And some folks who shouldn't have had insurance at all because they weren't eligible, she was giving them our best coverage. 
And that was creating losses. So I sat her down. I said, listen, here's the problem. Here's the specific instances. And here's how we're going to fix it. You're going to stop doing this. We're going to put the right coverages on these customers. And I knew by experience, since I had been doing this for a while, that it was going to take us a year to fix this problem. It wasn't going to happen overnight. This was a long-term problem. So I said, listen, I'll help you, but we got, we're going to get this fixed. She wasn't too happy about it, but I thought she kind of understood, and she left my office. About a week later, I get a call from HR. And HR says, Lloyd, we have an accusation of sexual harassment. And as you might imagine, I was stunned, disappointed. After I hung up the phone, I said a prayer to God. I said, God, you know, I got a lot on the line here. Everybody up to the CEO knows I'm a Christian. I got two men who I'm doing a Bible study with. This is a total devastation to my, to um, your name. And what, what I've been trying to accomplish in you at, at American Family, this is, this is devastating. God, I need you to save me. I need you to be my refuge. I didn't know this psalm to turn to this particular psalm, but I was in, this, I was in the place of Psalm 71, verses 12 and 13. This is exactly where I was. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, O my God, to help me. May I, my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. I was innocent of the charges. My assistant was, was right there in the office at the same time, who happened to be a woman. I picked up the phone and I called my wife. I said, wifey, this is, and that's how I call her. That's, that's how I address my wife. I said, wifey, here's, here's what's going on. Now the good news is this. If you work and you're married in the workplace, Make sure your spouse knows the people that you work with. I would, uh, man or woman, it doesn't matter. Make sure that, they, and make, let them come to the office whenever they want. It's good when my wife just shows up. That's a good thing. It, it, it protects me. It helps people know who she is. I, I love my wife. I hope you get that about me. I'm all about wifey, okay? And I think that if you're a married person, you, Seth, you need to be all about Asia. Asia, you need to be all about Seth. All right, Nicole, same deal. You need to, so anyway, I had that going for me. My wife knew me. My wife knew the woman because she hadn't met her. And so she instantly, now I explained the situation, what was really going on. She knew, she believed me. And we started praying over the phone. My wife, thank God, I have a, a Mary, a righteous woman. You're in your first stage of life. You're thinking about marrying somebody. Let me tell you this. Don't mess this up. Marry a righteous person, somebody who knows God. And when they call, God answers. My wife went to the Bible study and she pulled the ladies aside. She took a risk and she shared what was going on. Those ladies went into prayer for me over a two week period where this investigation took place. And HR did a very thorough job as they should have. They talked to me. They talked to my assistant who was a woman. They talked to the woman who made the acquisitions and praise God. I was totally cleared from that situation. And I learned something about God in that fire. I learned how to practice Ephesians 10, 6, chapter, verses 10 through 20, about putting on the whole armor of God. Putting, I figured it out, how to put on the helmet of salvation. I'm trying to tell you that if you're trying to do something for God, 
If you're trying to witness where you can in the workplace, the devil is angry, and it's not your co-workers who are your enemy. It's satanic, it's spiritual, and so you need to be spiritually prepared. That's why you need to be here in your Bibles, reading these Psalms, praying, serving, doing all the things that we do to discipline ourselves and prepare ourselves to go to battle out in the world. We need to be prepared. I had my helmet of salvation. I had my shield of faith, baby. Those the enemy's arrows were hitting my faith. I knew God was going to deliver me because he's good. Not because I was so righteous and had never, because he's good, because he loves me like a father takes care of his son. Come on, I want to always be in my father's household. Now I pray that my son grows up and goes on his own, but I want to stay in my father's household, spiritually speaking. I want to be in God. He comes and he saves us. Salvation is not a one-time event. Salvation is for life. That is the first resolution that this person makes. He didn't say, God, just save me when I was a kid. He said, I'm old now. Some of you are in your fourth stage. I'm old now. I need God to save me today. That's the first resolution, that God will provide salvation. You should always seek refuge in the Lord. The second salvation is similar. I will always hope in the Lord. Hope is a confident expectation and a desire that a certain good thing will happen in the future. Hope is, is faith directed towards future things. I learned this very recently from a woman. Her name is Karen Kraus. She lives in Madison. She is the executive director of a, a new non-for-profit, actually it's not so new, about a 10-year non-for-profit called Hope and a Future. Here's briefly Karen's story. Growing up in the 60s in a small town in Wisconsin, her dad died suddenly. Her mom, who wasn't working, had to go back to work, and she became a latchkey kid overnight. Uh, there was a woman in the neighborhood that everybody called grandma, though nobody was related to her. And so she would come home, and grandma would be in her house, little house, cooking cookies, and she would invite, she knew the situation of the family, so she invited Karen over. And she would go over to grandma's house pretty much every day, and they would just cook, and they would just clean, and she would do little things that the elderly woman couldn't do, and the other woman would watch after and give good counsel to her. This went on for several years until she went to college. Karen became an RN. And then she started teaching CNAs, certified nursing assistants. And she had this young woman she was teaching. And there was, it was an evening class, there was a break in the evening class, and this woman ran out to her car to take care of something. And it got time for the class to restart. Karen couldn't find her, so she went outside because she wanted her to be in the course. And the woman walked in and she could tell something was wrong and, and she just fessed up, she said, listen, in this van, I have my two kids, age two and four. And I, I, I need to learn this stuff. I need a job. I don't have a job. I was laid off. My babysitter was supposed to take care of these kids, but, but she it didn't, couldn't do it today. So they're in the car, and Karen's heart was broken. She was a geriatric nurse, and she saw the needs of these younger people. So this is where the vision for her came for Hope in the Future. Hope in the Future is an organization, it's a property 
about 3440 High Point Road, about three miles from here. And it is a community, the vision for this place is a community where you have retired people, maybe empty nesters, some a little bit more frail, and single moms in particular with kids. And the idea is that they come together to help each other. The elderly can help kind of watch the kids. The, the younger can take care of the grandma. And the idea is that there would be a dignity both on both sides. So this is the vision for hope in the future. So um, in 2005, Karen wrote this thing down and she put a board together and they started working. And for eight, nine years, her board would get together and they would pray and everything they tried just seemed to come to, to didn't come to pass until this year, until 2013. An investor appeared who was willing to do this, make this investment, even though from a business perspective, it wasn't a good deal, wasn't gonna pay off. But she bought, this investor bought into the vision. Now here's what, here's what occurred. They had a meeting where they were gonna close the deal. And Karen had uh, a, a law firm with free advisors right at her side. The bankers were there. They were about to close on this deal. But there was one person at the table, very influential person. And he kept telling everybody, listen, this deal won't work. If you invest in this, you're going to lose money. This deal won't work three different times. So finally, what happened is one of the investors, a non-Christian, got up and said this. Everybody knows that. We already know that this deal isn't going to make it. We feel like this project needs to get done. We are fully in support of Karen. During those years, those eight years when nothing happened, Karen told her board this. During those eight years, nothing we tried seemed to be working. I just told the board that we had to remain patient because God was going to bring this, what, what he had started in me, to pass. We just had to keep the faith and not quit. Listen, hope is faith directed towards the future. Here at High Point, we have some folks who've been around here who know about hope. Because in about 2007, High Point, which at one church point been a megachurch, was down to 300 members. And some people dug in their heels. And they said, we're going to make it. This is 2007, less than 300 people. I'm sure they were nervous. Some people remember that they were thinking about they might close the doors. But the last month or so, because of their hope, their belief that God was going to sustain High Point Church. Some of the folks who were there talk about God giving them a specific vision that this thing was going to work. The last month, we've had over 600 coming for both services. I'm trying to tell you that you need to depend upon God's promises, God's vision, God's will. That is the certainty that we depend on. The second lesson is your resolution should be, I will always hope in God. The third resolution is this, I will always praise the Lord. There's a word in Hebrew, tehillah. It's found three separate times in Psalm 71. For example, in verse 6, this is what it says. Psalm 71 verse 6 says this. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will always, Tehillah, I will always praise you. That same verb, that same word is used in verses 8 and in verse says 14. And later on in the passage, a couple of other words are used. 
Yada in verse 2, which is where we get the word Judah, meaning praise. That means to give thanks. That's in verse 22. In verse 22 and 23, Zamar. This is to, to praise with the song. This is to praise with the instruments. In those verses, uh, those, those words are translated to praise. Praise emanates from us when we are in awe of God, when we recognize who God is. In this psalm, we see that God is righteous. We recognize that God is holy. We praise God for who he is. The psalmist in this verb, in this verse, in this chapter 71, in this song, he praises God for what he's done. God has redeemed him. God has saved him. These are some of the reasons why we praise God for who he is, holy, righteous, omnipotent, totally awesome for what he's done, salvation, deliverance, uh, provision for what he's done. And the other thing, reason we praise God is just because he is simply God. Praise is an essential aspect of what we do. In fact, that's why we come together. We come together to praise God, not just with our songs and not just with our hand clapping. We come together to praise God with our entire lives because he is holy and righteous. I like the way the psalm writer of Psalm 34 puts it. I will, because God is who he is, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear. You're struggling. I want you to hear that there is salvation and deliverance in God. You might be downcast and depressed. What I'm saying to you, put your hope in God. God can turn your situation around from your emotions and and your psychology as well as your outward circumstances. God is in the total person deliverance business. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let us exalt him in our service together. As we go out in the community and as you serve, as you serve in your university ministries with Christians, let you, let you praise God, exalt God together. As you serve in crew, praise God together in your marriages, going together on the mission field. Praise God together. That's what this psalmist is declaring. That's what we do at High Point Church. That's what they're doing this morning. One of the things I love about High Point Church is we invest in teaching our kids how to worship God. We have something called Kids Celebration. I see Emily Broom smiling. Her and her husband and several other people have dedicated 10, 12, some more years. Every Sunday morning, teaching God to praise in songs that they can understand, declaring God's mercy and goodness and justice in terms that they can understand. And so from the young ages, you ever been to VBS here? VBS here, if you came, the kids were worshiping God with their whole hearts and souls. That's what they're learning at High Point Church, to praise the Lord. And even in our teenagers, Tony Dollinger has started this this ministry, and now we got our teens. Our middle school and our teens are learning how to praise God, learning how to be song and worship leaders. You ought to be excited that from a young age, people are learning how and why they should serve and praise the Lord. That's the the third resolution, that you praise the Lord. 
always. The fourth resolution is also extremely important. I will always enjoy the presence of the Lord. We see that in this psalm in verses 9 and 12. But the best illustration of this in my mind is in Joshua chapter 1. Turn to your Bibles, page 331. Joshua chapter 1. I have a couple quick points. So the situation is this, Moses is died and Joshua has to take the people in to the promised land, into Canaan. Here in chapter 1, God has given him the specific uh, prescriptions of the land. He's mapping out, this is the territory that you're going to take. Now Joshua is a bit afraid because he's been serving underneath Moses, who by all account was an outstanding leader for 40 years. He's never had to lead millions of people on his own. And so he's a bit intimidated and God wants to assure him of this that he's going to be with him. So let's look at verses 5 through 9. I want to talk about the presence of the Lord, practicing the presence of the Lord. Verse 5, no one will be able, this is God speaking, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This verse is also quoted in Hebrews 12 and 5. And it's for the saints. It's for you to know that God's presence is with you to deliver, to provide, to protect you. God is with you every day of your life if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. God is saying, trust me, have hope in me because of what I have promised, because of what I have done in the past. I'm good for it. I made these promises. Trust me. Believe me. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law of my servant Moses that he gave you. And do not turn from it, from the right hand or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. That's the purpose of this message today. That you may be successful wherever you go. That you may be successful in your first stage, second, third, fourth, final years of your life. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In my mind, in these first five verses, the keys are verses eight and seven and eight, where he tells the Joshua to be in the word, to, to read the word, to know the word. And then the second part of that is to meditate on the word. What is that about? That's when you begin to ask yourself some questions. So you're in school, you're working, you're going through a trial by fire. How does this apply to me right now? Well, as I sort this through in my own life, the question I'm asking myself in my meditation time is this. Am I doing what God clearly has told me to do in that situation? There there might be a problem that you're having with a friend or a co-worker. The question is, have you sinned against them or not? If you sinned, repent to God. Go restore, as Nick talked about last week in the five steps. Go restore that situation, and you're going to find peace like you hadn't found before. God will turn that thing around. But you might be doing the right thing. 
And so then you should be trusting on God. You should be praying to God. You should be asking God's deliverance. So meditate on the word of God. How does it apply to my situation? Do I need to go repent? Do I need to go uh, and just pray and ask for, for forgiveness? Think on these things. And that starts us back to Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? The person loves the word of God. It's planted like they're by the fields, by the streams of water. Whatever they do, prosper. This has direct application to the Psalms. We need to learn how to practice the presence of God. And I think three keys to that. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing God's will? Do, do we know what we should be doing in this situation? Are we doing it? We need to be asking God's guidance throughout the day. One of the great habits that you can begin, if you haven't already, is when you're going through difficulties with your children at work, at church, ask God to help you. Take a minute, go to the bathroom. Ask God to help you in that moment. And the third thing is when God gives you answers, you can rejoice in God right there in the office. You can have your own praise songs. I was driving in to work this morning, and I was listening to Light 102.5. There was a song that really spoke to me about this issue, the presence of the Lord. You've heard this song before, most of you. Chris Somlin, who can I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever. He is a friend of mine. Listen, we serve a God who has created all things and who rules in every situation. Uh, there's nothing beyond his authority. And if you have accepted Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, he is a friend of yours. You can go to your father and ask for what you need. And he promises to never forsake you. He promises to deliver to you what you need. Not everything that you want, but that which you need. Not only for here, but also for eternal life. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, you need to learn to practice the presence of God. He is real. And through reading your Bibles regularly, through meditation, through song, through prayer, and I'm talking about just simple prayers in your car while you're struggling with your kids, God will reveal himself to you. He will deliver and bring hope to your situation in real time. That's the kind of God that we serve. The fifth resolution is this. I will always tell of your salvation. This is talking to those who don't know the Lord and those who do. This is the good news about Jesus Christ. Billy Graham turns 95. That'll put him in the fourth stage of life according to Dr. Smith's model. And he is still actively involved in making sure the gospel is spread throughout the world. In 1949, at age 31, Billy Graham preached his first crusade sermon in Los Angeles. In, 19, in 2005, at age 87, he retired. Here's some of the data on his preaching ministry. Billy preached the gospel to over 215 15 million people live 
in 185 countries. Talk about a missionary. He's celebrating his 95th birthday next month. And Billy and his evangelistic association got some more plans. They got something they're calling Hope America. It's a, a series of videos designed to clearly give testimonies, real testimonies about people being delivered in America, combined with videos of, of Billy Graham's preaching in the past. So he's got the series. Now, why are they doing this? Why is he doing this 60 years after he started preaching in, the, in, in America evangelistically in 1949? 60 years later, why is he doing this? Well, here's the research that they've done. In the typical American community, for every 100 Americans, here's the reality, seven struggle with depression, 14 are crippled by fear and anxiety, seven are abusing drugs or alcohol, three are grieving the death of a loved one, eight are struggling with the loss of a job, and 60 don't profess to be born of the Spirit of God. They have concluded that even in America, even today, that there is a harvest field and the laborers are few. Billy's saying, listen, I'm 95, but I'm still ready to go. Listen, one of the reasons I like hanging out with Bill Taylor when I can is that as he is retiring, he has decided to put on hiking boots. He wants to get out there and spread Christ's love practically through help as well as with his gospel. He's not into slippers. He's not easing into retirement. He is going forward like Caleb. There's some mountains to be taken. That inspires me. I'm not quite yet at that stage. That inspires me. That instructs me on how I should be prepared. I can still be productive into the fourth stage of life. And you can still be productive whatever stage of life that you are in. Psalm 71 and 15 says this, My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I know not its measure. I don't know its limits, but I know God is good, and I'm going to tell everyone I can while I still have time. He's saying, God, save me because I still have work to do, which brings me to the last point. The sixth resolution is this. I will declare your power to the next generation. This comes from verse 18. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who come. Listen, as this person reaches the, clo the close of their life, they still have goals. God. I may be old and I may be moving slow. I might even be in a wheelchair today. But God, don't take me just yet. There's some more people that I need to tell. Maybe I've got grandchildren or there's some people here in Awana. Listen, I've got some other, the next generation that I want to invest the gospel in. John Shearer, who is a pastor, an Irishman pastor, he has been pastoring in Ireland and Scotland for 40 years. He says this, we ought not hold on to the reins of power, authority, and leadership too long. I think he's talking to upper 40s and beyond, the people who tend to be in power in the churches. We ought not to hold on to the reins of power, authority, and leadership too long. We need to be involved in training the upcoming generations. 
I want to give you an example of where I think God has applied that in your life here at High Point Church. 2010, we were looking for uh, a new pastor. And one of the reasons that I believe God called a a then 33-year-old man to come to High Point, Nick Gibson, was, I think, because of this particular situation, that God was concerned about the next generation of, of High Point Church. And um, there was a committee, and I was on that committee. There was nine of us. And as best as I could tell, the average age of the persons on that committee were about 55. The youngest people were Ingrid Gruitt, maybe in her mid-30s, Dan Pinka, He's moved into the 40s now, but uh, Mead and David, we were the babies. And uh, the kind of the, uh, the, the, the grand matron of, the, of that group, the elderly statement was uh, uh, McKenna, Dr. McKenna. Many of you will remember Dr. McKenna. Uh, we were thinking then, it was on our minds before God clearly identified and, and physically called Nick here that we needed to be concerned about the next generation. In fact, I remember David Miller saying something. He said, I need to be concerned about who's going to pastor my daughters. His daughters, I don't know, five, eight, nine years old. He's concerned about finding a pastor for his daughters. So, and we also knew that at that time, at High Point, in terms of regular attendance, between ages 16 and 30, we were light. We didn't have a lot of folks who were coming that were in that area. And we knew that that wasn't a good recipe for sustainability. As a church, our mission statement is to be multi-generational. We want to worship, we want to preach, we want to teach in ways that affirm every generation. And also multicultural. So we thought when Pastor Nick came, we knew that he would be effective preaching to adults, especially that 20 to 30 year old group. And we knew because we had tested him out with some of our more mature saints that he'd be effective preaching the gospel there. Um, After a time of fasting and prayer, God clearly identified Nick as the person that the committee should recommend to the elder board, and the rest is history. Um, This particular slide, I think, affirms some of the things that we were thinking and what God is doing at High Point Church. This is a slide that shows those who've been on the hub and have signed up for small groups, what their demographics are in terms of age. You will note that, and I I don't have a pointer handy, you will note that the 20s, which is the top bar, over 50% of the people, and there's been about 175 people that have requested to get involved in in small groups, that 70 or over 53, almost 53% are from that category. And that might not surprise you, but here's what surprised me. And what's been surprising me since I started taking over the leadership of small groups. The next biggest group is in their 50s. Actually in that 40s to 50s area. And many of these people who are are inquiring are single uh, and want to be a part of our fellowship. So guess what? I am looking for leaders, young and old, that want to be a part of developing folks in their 20s. And I'm looking for people who want to develop those are in that 40 to 50 group in particular because that's where the need is. So God is doing a wonderful thing at High Point Church. And he is applying verse 18, this notion 
of when I am gray and old to be, to be trying to reach the next generation. God is doing that through people whose hair is black and brown and, and blonde. He's doing that through other groups that have not quite reached that cohort. That's a phenomenal thing. At High Point Church, you might be 24 years old, but you could be the, commu- the communications director like Lisa Dollinger. You might be 25, 26 or something like that, and you could lead a worship band like Tony and Nicole, right? You could be like Greg Wahlberg and be a part of the worship band. You could be like Asia and, and Seth sitting here over here to my right. You could run a small group that's overflowing and be, be talking, Lloyd, I need some help. You could be involved. You could be deeply involved in ministry. You don't have to wait until you become 40. There's opportunity for you to declare God's power to the next generation. In fact, in Kathleen's ministry as a children's director, as in Derek's ministry as a youth director, they're, they're over, not overflow, we can always use more bodies. They have many people who are young and they're in their 20s and are serving the next generation. And even our middle school people are volunteering with younger folks. God is showing through that kind of dedication and ministry, we're showing the world that we love each other. John 13, 35. The world knows we are Christians by our love. And so when our younger people invest and help our older, and when our older folks here develop and disciple those who are newer, God is glorified. That's what the psalmist had in mind in 71 verse 18 when he says, I will always declare God's power to the next generation. God is doing it at High Point Church. You should be excited about what he's doing. As I close, I have been um, putting these resolutions that... come from Psalm 71 that are designed to help us live abundant lives through all the stages. I will always take refuge in the Lord. I will always hope in the Lord. I will praise the Lord. I will enjoy the presence of the Lord. I will evangelize. I will tell the Lord's salvation and I will disciple the next generation. I will tell the Lord's goodness to the next generation. And I pray that you will embrace these. You may have not, maybe you don't know Christ. I would suggest that God would like you to take the first resolution, that you would learn to trust God with your whole heart and soul. We'll have an opportunity for you to do that. We're going to have some ministers that will pray with you. I pray that today, the scripture says, is the acceptable day of salvation. This wonderful God desires that you receive him. And those of us who are a bit older, It really isn't the resolutions that I've talked about that will have an impact on your life for the future. It's the resolutions that you make yourself, the commitments that you make for yourself, the ones that you embrace and live out. And so maybe there might be some here on the board that you need to embrace for yourself. Because I think you're probably like me. You haven't completely made it yet. There's some growth that still needs to happen in your life. Won't you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we fully recognize 
just like the psalmist of old.